Hey, welcome back to the Behind the Well Show. I'm your host, Roger Abel, here with Elias Randall. Elias, I'm going to ask you how the the refereeing or umpiring went, but I know you already told me yesterday you were sore, so you must have been doing some running. Yeah, yeah, I was pretty sore this weekend. Um, had a really good, fun, competitive game. We had a couple hairy situations that I think we got – on the field we got right but after watching the video got it wrong so those always suck but we had a play where the two calling officials which would be myself and the other line of, and then not the other line but a line of scrimmage official we had two people fighting for a ball and then they both went to the ground and no one could see the ball and then it popped up in the air and was intercepted so we really don't know if it was an incomplete pass or an interception and through officiating philosophy, you really cannot award a turnover without all of the information. Cause we're talking about possession, which is a big deal in the game. But then after watching the film, I think it should have been a, probably should have been an awarded interception. It was unfortunate. But. So you get in trouble for that? No, because there's only, no, cause there's, there's no five of us. There's no instant replay. And, like, let's say we told an evaluator how we came to the conclusion that we should have an incomplete pass. Well, they would agree with our on-field decision. Like, we would have to have replay in high school football to make that a turnover in that situation. Do you think they'll have replay ever? In high school? There's probably not enough cameras. They probably have one camera and there's no good camera angle. It's not like NFL, probably, where they have multiple Um, camera shots and – it could potentially I could see I could see going to replay um, like in the state playoffs maybe with because really with like the cameras they have and maybe one or two other ones I, the right angles but it would be limited you know it wouldn't be like as robust as college and NFL football it would be you know if there's any t- probably targetings would be reviewed if you had any um and then probably scoring plays and then maybe potentially like turnovers, turnovers. and stuff I like that I could see that because some of those things you you might be able to disseminate better from a camera you probably don't need like I, I always think of um uh like the spot of a football I don't think you'd ever be able to do that in a high school replay cuz no cameras moving down the line of scrimmage and yeah, it, and you know what I mean. So yeah, there wouldn't there wouldn't be any of that. Um, so yeah, it, it was still a fun game. Ultimately, that play didn't change anything about who won. Um, so it was all in all, it's good. It's just it's human error. You can't be perfect on everything. Nice. We uh, we started our fall cleaning the other day, so I've got a lot of stuff listed on Facebook Marketplace. I made four trips to Goodwill, filled wow. the garbage cans. Yeah, we're we're getting aggressive here, trying to get get stuff cleared out and make room for new stuff. We had like four or five of those, I don't know, motorized different types of cars in the garage, and our kids only use one. So I made them a deal. I said, let's get rid of all the other junk that you don't use. We'll take that money and go get a new new one. Like you guys like to have that little, it's like Peg Perego Polaris. It's like a little mini Polaris electric car, or whatever. And all the girls in the neighborhood fight over it. You know, there's like five or six girls and two can ride, except you could ride on the back. And I told my daughter, no riding on the back. So we're going to go for two of them. Uh, you should take the governor 
off of it. I don't know how to modify those, but Dude, have trust- you ever seen that when someone modifies a kid toy? They put like a, a DeWalt battery on it. Listen, this thing like peels out when my girls take off. I mean, it's really? fast. Yeah. So, you know, it just makes it a little more risky. And, you know, it's funny that we talk about risk because that's what I want to start the topic today is, you know, there's two types of risks that investors should be actually concerned with. Just kind of like I'm trying to monitor or regulate the risk of my kids when they're playing on their toys. You know, that we, we had two, I'll use two, two cars as an example. We had this little pink Mercedes electric car. It's built for like four-year-olds and younger because you can't go super fast. The Polaris like peels out. Well, investors really have two types of risk too, Elias. They've got the risk we always think about, and it's the risk most people are always concerned with, and that's their actual risk tolerance. And if you go back and kind of pull like any financial advisor, any person, any 401k, most of the time they're going to run a person through a risk tolerance questionnaire. It's probably like 10 to 20 questions designed so you can't like trick it, right? To determine how much risk you're willing to take. And that's the most common type of risk out there. And everybody should quantify what risk they're willing to take. Like there's there's certain things and I, and I you know, I, I'm an equity owner, but I probably take less risk than some, just I'm less risky in my personal investments. Yeah, I know some people that are out there trading futures and options and all kinds of stuff and leveraging and they're taking a massive amount of risk, but they've determined they're okay to do that. But there's a second risk that people actually never talk about and that we've utilized for a long time through the financial planning process. And that's actually someone's risk capacity. And the easiest way to explain this is if I take an individual and we do a financial plan and someone tells you their risk tolerance is a three out of 10, I'm just using an arbitrary number. So moderately conservative and we do a financial plan and it says, Hey, Mr. Client or Mrs. Client, your probability of success in this moderately conservative portfolio is 52%. So we're like flipping a coin. But if we went to a portfolio that was 70% stock and 30% bonds, your probability of success is 84%. Their risk capacity is their higher probability. So in most cases, if I posed that question to somebody, I said, hey, which, what do you want? I took out the risk tolerance out of the equation and just said, do you want an 82% probability or a 52? What do you want? What they're going to take they're going to take higher the higher probability because they want this to work. Yes, and what happens is people from my experience tend to get their risk tolerance wrong because nobody's actually quantified for them what they need to be doing. Yeah. Nobody's ever said, "Well, you should have this portfolio because this is the optimal outcome." Let's just flip it into the doctor world. I would I would guess most people's risk tolerance to have a surgery is very low. Nobody wants to have a surgery. I agree with that. Okay, I'm going to tee up. Elias, do you want to go have surgery today? No. Okay. Well, your probability of living, if you don't have the surgery, is 20%. The probability of living if you have the surgery is 85 Do you want to have surgery today? Yes. Yes. So we get to ignore risk tolerance in some cases. And we probably should in the financial planning arena too, but nobody ever thinks about it. 
and misjudging that risk becomes costly. And it's probably one of the reasons that I have such a problem with the target date fund. Because it just, it adjusts your risk without any other information other than age. Yes, it only takes into account risk tolerance, not risk capacity. I have a client. I'm going to give you a great example of why this is great. If I only did risk tolerance with this guy, we would have set him up for failure every time the stock market goes down. I get the call. Do you think we should go to cash? Every time. Actually, not this time. This last time he didn't. And I'll tell you a great story. So the last time, you know, 2018 election year, that, that, that fourth quarter was bad. He called. COVID, he called. And every time I just say, well, I don't know. Let's go look at your financial plan and see what the outcome is if we go from your current portfolio to all cash. And each time his probability of success went to zero. So I just said, what would you like to do? Would you like to go from an 80% probability to a zero? I guess we should probably just stick it out. And finally, after COVID, he's like, I'm never going to call again. And he hasn't because what we've done is we've actually established what his risk capacity is. He's now okay with the market risk because he knows the conservative choice puts me in more peril than me having to watch the stock market go up and down. Right. And that's, and that's how misjudging your own risk can be costly because if it doesn't work, if you become too conservative and too early in your investing career, like there's growth that you're going to miss out on that you may need for the future. And even if you're 60 years old, you know, there's an argument to be made that some of your money could still be invested through the stock market. And you're kind of, uh, you're hedging your risk against inflation. If you get enough growth, you know, that money might be what you use to pay for care someday, but to just go super conservative, um, a lot of times you can't generate the type of return you need to make things work over the long term, over the long period of time. Well, and it could be converse to that too. Absolutely. Because there might be a situation where I have somebody who's a ultra aggressive investor, like they're good with that risk. But the optimal portfolio to give them the best outcome is 70% stock. It, it could be, hey, you've got a 58% probability at 100% stock and 81% at 70. So in that case, you gotta dial them back. So it works both ways. It's not just going up or down. But I think it's the number one problem with the target date fund is that, you know, you don't, it's just assuming somebody's risk tolerance. The other thing, just to go a little bit further, it's not just risk capacity and probabilities, but it's also risk capacity and what we call the safety margin. The expected dollars in the portfolio at time of death, and you mentioned it, helps pay for extended long-term care visits, longevity, um, all those different things that maybe weren't factored into the, the financial plan because it's, it's more of the non-scientific part. I don't know how long someone lives. I don't know how much care you're going to need, all those things. So you try to build that safety margin too. But I, but I think people should really think about that and say, hey, what is my risk capacity, not just my risk tolerance? And ultimately, Elias, the only way to do it is you're doing some type of a financial plan. That, that's what that's doing. It's quantifying your risk capacity in what's out there for you. Yeah, so a few episodes ago, we talked about... Um, becoming a 401k millionaire and some of the numbers on that through fidelity. And so we had, we had some comments and some questions on that from people. And 
I think it was just really around how, you know, people, if you say, okay, it's fairly easy to become a 401k millionaire, well, then people want to know how you do it. So the, the steps are, are, uh, you know, the steps to doing that, it's really participating in the 401k plan. So that's a matter of opening an account and then contributing to, um, and then also the allocation. So we're just talking about risk capacity. So I think for in the lens of someone who's younger, when you're starting your 401k, it's probably within your risk capacity to be very aggressive with the investment elections in there. The reason is your very long time horizon. And then also when that account has, you know, if you have an account with $10,000 and it, it goes up 10% in a year, 10% sounds like a good number, right? Well, we're talking about a thousand bucks at that point. You'll feel deflated because only went up a hundred dollars, like all that for that. Right. Yeah. Right. So, but to get to those bigger numbers, you just have to keep systematically putting money in and keep buying the good investments and just keeping, taking advantage of one, the investment options in there, making sure you're picking the, the quality options taking advantage of the time that you have. So when you're young, you know, here's a really, here's a really interesting thing about being young and investing. If you, to get to a million dollars, we have some numbers here to get to $1 million in the account. If you still have 48 years to invest, you only need to do $170 per month. So that's pretty attainable, right? Like if you're young in your young twenties, do 170 bucks a month. If you have 30 years to get there, you need to do 735 per month. And then at 20 years to get there, it's over 1800. And then if you wait, so this kind of shows the cost of waiting. Let's say you wait and you're five years out, you have to save over $14,000 per month to have a decent chance at hitting a million dollars in the account. And then we're making some assumptions here too, just assuming normal market fluctuations and returns. So, you know, I think is it, it's very possible to become a 401k millionaire. And I think the 401k is the most popular account that people become millionaires in. I think there's now more million people with a million dollars in a 401k than ever before. I believe that is a, a true stat. Yeah, I, I think so. And do you remember the podcast, Elias, we did, and I talked about uh, Ryan Serhant and how billionaires think? Yes. Well, it kind of got me thinking like, if you're going to be a, have a million dollars in your 401k, you have to put yourself into a certain kind of mindset. So we went out there and kind of said, Hey, what are the things that millionaires do or what are the common traits that they have to get them there? Because you don't just start saving $170 a month or $1,800 a month because you want to be a millionaire. It's like most goals. Like you have to figure out how you're going to do it. And most millionaires put themselves into a little bit different mindset. And we did some research and came up with like the 10 signs that you're in that mindset. And the first one is you save money regularly. It's almost impossible unless you own a business or win the lottery to accumulate a million dollars if you don't save regularly. Now, the most common way to do that is like you said, payroll deduct through the 401k right? It's just out of sight, out of mind. You don't even know you have it. 
It just is what it is. It doesn't have to be that way. It could be a monthly contribution to a Roth. It could be you write a check for $10,000 every year when you get your tax return back, but it's regular, systematic, and you don't deviate. That's the easiest and number one kind of sign that you're in the millionaire mindset. The second is you invest wisely. This is actually overlooked because when you're younger, so it's two, two, two ages, younger and older, tend to take excessive risk. Because you mentioned if you're five years from retirement and to get to a million dollars, you need to save 14,000 a month. Well, what's the other way to get to a million dollars? Take a lot more risk, right? Higher risk, higher reward. Yes. So many times we'll see people who've delayed actually stretch their risk and not really invest wisely. They can't afford to take that risk. They're actually putting themselves at peril. There is a there was an asset class about 10 years ago that was really popular. I'm not I'm not going to say what it is, but it was very popular because the dividend yields were seven, eight, nine percent. And 10 years ago, there was no yield. So what happened? Retirees who hadn't quite saved enough to manage the current interest rate environment started looking and stretching for yield. Seven, eight, nine percent, you know, dividends. Guess what happened? They got chopped down by about 70 percent because they took too much risk. So invest wisely is really when you get into that mindset, too. Yeah, I think I think some of the or at least I hope, but I feel like some of the super aggressive behavior we saw over the last couple of years, especially like 2021, I think some of that's washed out of the market now. I mean, I know there's still people, you know, buying Bitcoin and trading cryptocurrencies and stuff, but I don't hear as much about it. I don't get asked about it nearly as often. Here's why I, so I know hope some of it's gone. I'm not in the YouTube and TikTok feed and all those feeds that are out there. It's not how to make a million dollars in a year investing $1 to start. Do you remember that one we did? The guy's like, let me show you the math to get to a million dollars this year. Yeah. And it was like the doubling of the money every day. So I, I think you're right about that. There's still some out there, but it's not what it was because a lot of the easy money's out, right? A lot of people got washed out. You bought Bitcoin right. at 66000 and now it's twenty six. Yeah, you lost 50%. A lot, of, a lot of consumers are not as cash rich as they were a few years ago. I mean, people just don't have the extra cash to do not smart things with their money. The third one, and this is probably, in my opinion, the most important one out of this list, and is they avoid impulsive spending. They prioritize quality purchases over everything else. So their goal is not to just go online and buy something. And I'm going to give you a good example because I've we've all succumbed to impulse buying. Sitting on Facebook and up pops the new shiny lure for fishing. Have to have it. I've done it. Yep. Well, I can't treat just yourself. get just I, treat yourself. Buy it. Yep. Well, I bought every color, every size. Yeah, it was like 250 bucks. Guess what? Never seen the water. They've never seen my boat. They're still sitting in the packaging in a box in my garage. But people that have a millionaire mindset, they, they get in this idea that, hey, if I buy something, I'm going to buy quality because I don't want to replace it. Like, I'm not going to buy cheap stuff, but I'm not just going to waste my money and buy stuff that I don't need or I won't use. 
I like I like that mindset. Buy if you're gonna buy it, buy quality and buy right. My dad, my dad's very frugal, but when he buys something, he buys he won't buy the best, but he goes and finds the one that's very good quality, so they don't have to replace it. Like that's what they that's do. Good, that's a good move. A lot of times, million, the millionaire people who have millionaire mindsets, they they have multiple income sources. You know, if I think about most of the millionaires I know, they own a business of some kind, right? Or they might have a job with a 401k, but they have some side hustle. They might have a rental property. They could own some land somewhere. They could do something on the side that generates extra income. And a lot of times, if you think about how a family budgets their money, it could be from your wages you earn at work. But if you have the side hustle that brings you in, let's just say a thousand bucks a month. A thousand bucks a month, if you just socked it away, man, it adds up to a lot. So multiple streams of income kind of gets you in the millionaire mindset too. The fifth kind of uh, trait that these people have, they have an eagerness to learn. I think this is actually important. I think it's overlooked because if you don't read and you don't learn, arguably you're not improving yourself from one year to the next. No. Like, I mean, seriously, if you read zero books, you go to zero conferences, you listen to zero podcasts, and you just stroll along life's path, that's okay. But you're not going to go to the next level if you're trying to like build massive wealth. Like You have to learn along the way. Yeah, I agree with that. I do. I mean, it'd be... F- Actually, I don't even know if it'd be fun to just kind of go along and never learn new things. There's probably not that many people that don't ever learn anything new. And I would think the more eager you are well, to learn, it's probably just fun, too. Two types of learning. Like, eager means I'm looking forward to doing it. Like, I'm going to seek out the information. So I, I'll just use like deer hunting for me. I, this time of year, I get very eager to learn about more about deer hunting because the season's coming up. So I'm seeking out information to improve my knowledge base. It doesn't matter what you're learning. Typically, people who are trying to become a millionaire are trying to learn about finances and money. But everybody learns every day. You're learning something every day, whether you try to or not. But I think about like yeah. your progression to what we do. Your eagerness to learn puts you in a really good spot really quickly compared to others in our industry. So um, it's one of the top things you have to have. And then setting goals and priorities that you can't accomplish most things without writing down a goal, figuring out what your priorities are. And I'm going to give you a good example. If you just say, hey, I'm going to accumulate a million dollars. Okay. How? There you go. If you don't know how it's going to happen. Yes. So you have to set clear goals and priorities if this is something you want to accomplish. Elias, I'm going to move through the last four signs that you have a millionaire mindset. Living below your means. Clearly, you can't accumulate money if you're always living living above your means. That kind of speaks for itself. Most people that have a millionaire mindset, they avoid bad debt, like the plague. I mean... It's a good idea. They probably made a mistake, and that's what now has caused them to avoid it, right? They bought that car that had an $800 car payment. They're like, I'm never doing that again. Um, They took the pain, got it over with. So they avoid bad debt. And here's one that I think is actually really underrated. And you've talked about this before, and I know I have, but they surround themselves with people who have similar 
money habits or thoughts about money. You know, I think, I don't know where I heard it. And I think maybe you said it to me, but you're kind of the average of the five people you hang out with. Yeah. That's something I've heard before. Yeah. You're kind of, so, you know, if you want to elevate your game, you probably got to learn to hang out with people that have elevated their game. And, you know, most of the time, if, if you went to an event, let's say you went to some event, I don't know what for just any event, the most successful people in the room are probably hanging out with the other most successful people in the room. I, I agree with that. I think the other thing you get with that is kind of like the iron sharpens iron mentality where if you're around people, like if you're around people that are just okay being okay, well then you're going to, you're going to feel good about being okay. Right. Where if you're around people that have higher expectations of themselves, well, they're going to naturally have higher expectations of you. And then if you know, and it all just kind of feeds off of itself, but I'm sure you don't find, I'm sure you don't find ultra successful people hanging out with people that aren't successful at all. I don't mean it it might happen, but I don't don't think think that would be the norm. I don't think they would just think about it. I mean, highly successful people, there's a, they have a certain amount of energy. If you get around people who are just an energy suck, it's going to take you down. I think they avoid people like that. Yeah, I think they do because they suck their energy out of them. Um, and the last thing they do, they take smart risks. They avoid reckless decision making. They're trying to, you know, put the thought into the risk that they take so that they can accumulate and build wealth throughout the future. But those are the ten, you know, kind of indicative traits that you know you probably have if you have this millionaire mindset. Yeah, and I like that last one, taking smart risks too, because I feel like especially especially whether it's young people getting started or no matter where you are in your investing career, you're going to have to take risk. Like it's some, just the way that the capital markets work and how money works. Like you have to have risk in your life at all times. Well, but being smart about it, like being intentional, making decisions that fit your risk capacity, fit your risk tolerance, you know, those are more important decisions to make than Oh, this is the greatest investment, you know, I've ever heard of or I've ever bought. So anyway, there there's another topic here about forgetting a 401k. And I'm glad we brought this up because um I would have no idea like if I didn't know where a 401k was or like I forgot about it previously, I would have no idea or if someone asked me, "Hey, I worked s- somewhere 20 years ago, and there was a 401k. I participated in it. I have no idea where to find the information or get a statement. Um, up until I read through this, I never really, I would have had to say, hey, I got to look and figure it out and I'll get back to you. But the nice thing is there are some places where you can start to look and locate an old 401k. So there's the National Association of Unclaimed Property Administration. That's a lot. That's a That's a lot of big words to... <laughs> have for an administration, but the NAUPA, and they maintain a database um, of lost accounts. So that's a good place to start. The National Registry of Unclaimed Retirement Benefits. I think me, if I didn't, if I had an old 401k out there and I wasn't sure, just because this one has the, the word retirement in the name, I would probably start there and you can find it. Um, and then also the U.S. Department of Labor 
they uh, they maintain an employee benefits um, database of terminated plans and things of that nature. So there's a few good options to start to locate an old 401k. And there's a couple other things that might happen. If you have a smaller balance, um, like between one a thousand and five thousand, I believe it is, the your old employer can start an IRA for you. They can basically move that plan off the books for the small balances, and then they don't have any liability on it. The other th- thing I was thinking about when I was reading through this, the forgotten about four hundred one ks. Do you remember that old? I think it was a Fidelity study that talked about the best performing accounts in their entire company were accounts that either someone had died and never done a claim. So the money remains invested because no beneficiaries ever did anything. And then accounts that people had forgotten about, not looked at in like 20 years were the best performing accounts and like beat the people who are actively trading their accounts all the time. Dr. Daniel Crosby wrote about that in his book, uh, the laws of wealth. I think it was that exact study and sometimes just getting out of your own way is the best thing you can do. It'd be that's it's kind of crazy to say, but maybe forgetting about an old account is it could potentially be the best thing you ever did. And we've seen it too. We have people bring in statements. Oh, I have this old account. I haven't looked at it for 15 years. I have no idea how much is in it. And then you look at it and you look at what it's grown to, and they're always really shocked. Here's something everybody should think about if you're switching a job you need to manage this 401k now don't just leave it there you can and i'm going to go through what some of the options people can do if you switch a job but the reason you wouldn't leave it behind is exactly what you're talking about it's very easy to forget about it especially if it's not a significant amount of money like most people if they worked at collins for 25 years and they left and went to john deere they don't forget about their 401k. I would hope not. But if you worked at Yonkers or JCPenney or Von Maurer, some small employer when you were a college student and they had auto enrollment into a 401k, it would be very easy to forget that you had the 401k yeah. because likely your balance was a thousand or two thousand dollars. So, or even a like, or even a like a part time job you worked for a while yeah. that you decided, oh yeah, I'll contribute because I get the match, and then you quit doing the part time job. You totally forget you ever even participated. It's going to become even more prevalent because now of all the auto enrollment when people start jobs, or you could be an employer, a small employer has a simple IRA. Many simple IRAs, you don't have to contribute, and the employer's kicking in one, two, three percent a year for you. So. If you leave a job, there's three things you can really do with this 401k. One, you can keep it at the old employer. And most 401ks will allow you. There's some cases where if you have a small balance, they're going to ask you to move the account. Um, Is that a good option? I don't think it's the best option. I, I think if you're leaving a job, you should do one of two things. You should roll it into your new employer's 401k so that you only have one to keep track of or roll it into a self-directed IRA. Because now what you're doing is you're simplifying. What I don't like to see people do is I have, I have an old 401k at this employer, employer A, switch jobs. Now I have one of employer B, employer C, employer D. Now we have four 401k plans. It's redundant. It's hard to keep track of. You're making a nightmare for your beneficiaries in the future. Because if something happens to you, now they have to deal with four companies instead of one. But the three options are you can leave it. 
you can roll it into a new employer 401k or you can roll it into an IRA. I mean, obviously, cashing's out, cashing out is an option. We highly discourage that if you're pre-59 and a half so you don't get hit with any penalties. But I think that, you know, if it was me, I'd find a way to simplify the process and either go to your new 401k or, you know, go to a self-directed IRA. Well, and I think consolidating those and keeping track of them, that would, to me, that's like the adult thing to do. Consolidate them somehow, keep them together, and then continue managing that. Okay, Eli, so I have to ask you. Yeah. What's the 401k hack? The 401k hack. See, the, I think you're going to like this. And this is, this was part of the Secure 2.0 Act and pretty timely, too, because everyone's student loan payments are coming back. And I know a lot of times it's a hard decision, especially for clients to make, um, even prospective clients to make, is they have some debt that they want to pay off. They don't want to forego the match with their company for not participating um, in the 401k plan. So here's the good news if you're in that situation. Part of Secure 2.0, if you're paying student loans, you can still get the match from your employer without putting money into the 401k plan. So just for ease of conversation, let's say it's a $300 a month student loan payment, and that would work out to be 3% of your income. And if you put in 3%, they'll give you 3%. So if you prove to your employer you're making the student loan payments, they, they can still and they will still match your retirement contributions. So you don't have to put money in the plan. You can make your student loan payments and that will qualify you to get that matching portion. I think that's great for people that are serious about paying off their debt, especially someone who, you know, if you're someone who's executing a debt snowball and you're taking paying off the debt very seriously and aggressively, it's nice to know that you don't have to give up that match. Cause that's really like the big, fork or not fork in the road, but kind of the hurdle for people when they're making that decision is, well, I don't want to give up the match. So I at least want to get that. So now you can actually accomplish both things um, at the same time, which I think is a great, I think that was a great part of the secure 2.0 act. And I, I hope people are aware and take advantage of it too, especially as this, the, um, especially as the Student loan payments kick back on this fall. I think it's this month or next month. I'm going to guess 98% of the people have no idea that exists. Oh, I'm sure barely the most savvy people do, but. I would guess most advice, unless you read through Secure Act 2.0, are you really going to know that's out there? Probably not. Most advisors don't know it's out there. Yeah, I, if you I pulled read advisors, this. they'd be like, "Yeah, no way it works that way." Yeah, that's how it works. So yeah, this caught my attention in an email I got. Yeah, you know, I didn't, I didn't read through the entire Secure 2.0 Act to figure out how it works. Right? Like, I mean, that's the benefit of being. It, once again, it goes to, you know, do, you can do this yourself, or you can do hire someone to do it for you. The advantage we have is that we're getting information kicked to us every single day that the average investor doesn't get. You know, we're getting 30 or 40 emails a day about different changing legislation, different opportunities. We get to read through it and get the highlights where the average person is not getting that. Yes. And, our, and if they are, they're getting, not average. Right. And we're getting the highlights from institutions. Yeah. So credible information Large sources, institutions. not just a Google search and then you read the first couple of things. None of it's coming from YouTube. 
<laughs> from YouTube. <laughs> but with that said, I, I thought this was a great show, Elias. I want to thank everybody for listening to the show or watching us if you're watching us. If you're looking for help getting a financial plan or getting some of the answers to things we talked about today, maybe you have a rollover, you want more questions on the student loan um, and the Secure Act 2.0, you can send us a question or reach out to us at btwellshow.com. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPIC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. All performance referenced is historical and is not a guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Premier Investments of Iowa Incorporated and LPL Financial do not provide tax advice. Please consult your tax professional.